This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Lead with Jay Tapper, up next on CNN. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. The nation just now surpassing 60,000 deaths from coronavirus, a number once projected the United States would not reach until August. We are still in April. Right now, the number of lives lost in the U.S. from coronavirus is 60,207, to be precise. The death toll this time a month ago was only 2,425. But we do have a glimmer of good news for you this afternoon. Dr. Anthony Fauci shared today what he described as good and highly significant news on a potential treatment for coronavirus. A new NIH study now shows evidence that a medication called remdesivir can help block coronavirus and has a, quote, clear-cut effect in diminishing the length of time one suffers from it. Dr. Fauci also saying that the mortality rate for patients taking this drug was lower. The New York Times is now reporting that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, is expected to issue emergency authorization for the drug to make it available to coronavirus patients quickly. CNN's Nick Watt reports now, Dr. Fauci said the remdesivir results remind him of the desperate effort to find a drug to help treat HIV more than 30 years ago. What it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. Very early results from trials of remdesivir suggest this HIV drug actually might treat COVID-19. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut, significant, positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. This is really quite important. This is not a cure. In studies touted by Dr. Fauci today, it lowered mortality and shortened the duration of the illness. This has not been a proven therapeutic. Physicians would probably be reluctant to, if they had other choices, um, to use something that protected in such a marginally valuable way. But we don't have other choices. For a viral to work in a positive way in these very sick patients, to me, is indeed very good news. Many states in this country now planning to reopen, and soon, despite dire warnings from Dr. Fauci for the fall. It is more likely than not that we will see this again and again until we really stick the nail in the coffin of this outbreak by a vaccine. Pfizer now says it will begin testing one in the U.S. shortly and claims it could supply millions by the end of the year. Oxford University in the U.K. started human trials last week of its own possible vaccine. Still, parks reopened in Miami this morning. Florida's governor, who was late to close, just unveiled his plan for reopening the state. We don't want to see any more infections, but we're going to work on it. Right now, it does not appear that any state meets the vague advisory White House guidelines that call for a downward trajectory of documented cases within a 14-day period before any reopening. 
Haircuts are already allowed in Colorado and Georgia. In California, we're told that's still months away by a governor now feeling pressure from those earlier openers. There's no question it puts pressure. I, I'd be lying to suggest otherwise. I'm worried uh, we can erase all the gains in a very short period of time. Meanwhile, a new Marist poll shows 65% of Americans think it's also a bad idea for people to return to work without further testing. And 91% think we shouldn't be holding large sporting events yet. I hope that there's some form of baseball. I mean, it's for the country's mental health. Around 2,500 just attended the funeral of a popular rabbi in Brooklyn. Twelve summonses were issued for violating social distancing and refusing to disperse. The city's mayor called out the entire Jewish community on Twitter and was criticized. I regret if the way I said it in any way gave people uh, a feeling of being treated the wrong way. That was not my intention. It was said with love, but it was tough love. It was anger and frustration. That model often cited by the White House says 74,000 will have died by August 4th. Could be sooner. We're already nearing 60,000. And as you mentioned, Jake, we have in fact just passed that stunning and sad milestone, 60,000 Americans dead. I just want to say one more thing about remdesivir, this drug that's being much touted today. It is worth noting that right now it is not approved anywhere in the world to treat anything. So an extraordinary use authorization from the FDA would be extraordinary. But these are extraordinary times and the FDA tells us that they are in ongoing discussions with the maker of that drug to get it to patients, quote, as quickly as possible. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. Joining me now is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, Dr. Fauci seemed uh, very optimistic about remdesivir. Um, what's, what's your read on it? Yeah, I mean, he did. I, I think my, my read is, you know, we've been waiting for a trial that actually is a randomized trial that's a, of a larger uh, group of patients. You know, most of the reporting that has been out there so far, most of these trials have been pretty small, uh, retrospective, meaning looking backwards, not randomized. Uh, so this was a, a well-conducted trial, about 1,000 patients in, uh, in 68 different centers uh, around the world, uh, Jake. Let me show you the results, though, just so, you know, when we talk about the significance and what this really does, it's important to look at what their outcomes they were looking at. They were trying to figure out, obviously, uh, survival overall, the mortality rate that's on the left, and then duration of illness. Now, with regard to mortality rates, you see that there's a difference between the people who were treated with with, uh, remdesivir versus placebo. When you do the calculation, though, that's not a significant enough finding. It's hard to say that that drop was actually due to the medication given the sample size. But the, it's the thing on the right, uh, you know, the duration of illness that is significant, a 31% faster recovery in those patients who got remdesivir. Now that, you know, that could be significant. You know, uh, it, it shows a couple things. One, it's proof of concept that this seems to have an impact on this virus, Jake. This has been a difficult virus, as we know, to, to treat. So this is the first one to uh, show that impact. Also, you know, there's this question, and I think it's going to be something we want to really find out. Does it also decrease the amount of virus in your nose and your mouth? 
because if it also does that, as you know, Jake, even once you're feeling better, that might decrease the spread of this as well, which would be a big deal. We don't know that yet, but I think you know there's there's certainly enthusiasm. This isn't a this isn't a home run by any means, but it's the only thing, as uh, Larry Brilliant said, that we really have at this point. Right, but it is a glimmer of, of, of potentially very good news. Um, the former FDA commissioner under uh, President Trump, Scott Gottlieb, uh, said the drug has, quote, enough data to support consideration of access under an emergency use authorization by the FDA. The New York Times is reporting that that could happen as, as soon as today. What happens after that, assuming that the emergency authorization from the FDA goes forward? Well, you know, as uh, as Nick Watt was just saying, they they got to get talk to Gilead and make sure that they can start to to produce enough of this medication. You know, this is a medication again. Many people may know it's been around for a while, right? It was trialed in Ebola as well, so that it, it it is a, a an existing drug. I think it's going to be a question uh, with Gilead now. Can they start to actually meet the demand that is certainly going to come? I should point out, and you you know this, Jake, but the EUA, the Emergency Use Authorization, has been um, uh, there's been a lower bar for that recently, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic. So I, I, um, I'm not surprised at all that it will be sort of uh, approved under this EUA sort of thing. I, I think it's a question of being sure that people who need it can get it. I talked to Scott Gottlieb just uh, about an hour ago as well about this. I think one of the question marks is who? Who should, who should get this now? And he was thinking that people who early on have the illness and are at high risk because of some sort of pre-existing condition, they probably will be the ones who may be the most likely to benefit from this, at least early on. Do you think this is a, a breakthrough? I mean, Fauci compared it to the feeling he had when AZT was discovered during the HIV uh, AIDS crisis 30 years ago. Yeah, I, I heard that, and I, I, I was a little surprised by that. Um, you know, uh, you, you could see the data in terms of what it does. There's, there's, at least in this early data, really no impact on mortality, on saving lives. It does seem to shorten the duration of illness, and that can be significant. You know, if you look at things like Tamiflu even, uh, shortening the duration and the severity of illness is important. Uh, it's not clear that it actually uh, will, will decrease mortality at this point. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. It's also, again, an existing drug. This is a drug that already existed, is being repurposed for this, for this indication now to treat coronavirus. So, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci obviously has 40 years been doing this, so he has a lot of context for these sorts of things. But I think, you know, people should look at the numbers, look at the data. You know, we'll, we'll continue to, we'll put that up on the website so people can look at this themselves. And, and Sanjay, uh, projections of what a death toll will be, the projections are not facts. Projections are just uh, predictions. Um, and the projection of the death toll of 60,000, just a few weeks ago, we were told we weren't going to get there until August. Uh, we just reached it. It's April. Why? What's going on? Yeah, Jake, I think, I think you and I had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago, and you said, is it likely that we're going to get this to this number before August 4th? And it was pretty clear by all the, all the trends that we were seeing. And as you know, that same model that predicted 60,000 now has the projected death toll around 74,000 people. 
You know, Jake, these models are, are, are frankly, they're all over the place. If you look at the, the numbers that we put up, they're actually part of a, a wide range. They, they give a wide range of numbers, anywhere from 30 to 140,000 in some of these ranges here. And I think it's, it's difficult. There's two things I think that happened over the last couple of weeks. One is that we started to include probable infections, probable hospitalizations, and probable deaths uh, with regard to uh, this, this COVID infection. Obviously, the plateau that we're seeing is more of a plateau that's at a high plateau versus a, a curve. You know, this is not looking like a curve as much as it went up, is staying up now for a while. We're going to see what happens next. Hopefully, it'll start to come down. And finally, Jake, you know, I mean, these stay-at-home orders that are getting lifted, uh, I don't know that that's already had an impact because that'll take a couple, three weeks, but it's certainly affected the models. I think that's part of the reason the projected debts now by August are, are going to go up. And look, even 74,000 which is now the August 4th uh, uh, model, what that's showing, that may be low based on what we're seeing right now. Yeah, that seems like a conservative estimate to me, at least based on today's facts. Sanjay Gupta, thank you. Sure. As always, we appreciate it. And be sure to tune in for a CNN yeah. Town Hall Coronavirus Facts and Fears hosted by Sanjay and Anderson Cooper. That is tomorrow night, Thursday at 8 p.m., only on CNN. Presidential son-in-law Jared Kushner on a mission to change the facts when it comes to the administration's response. The stunning claim he is now making, that's next. Plus, hundreds of TSA employees, many of them who screen passengers, have been infected with coronavirus as airlines start making major changes that could impact the future of air travel for a long time to come. That's next. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, President Trump once again taking time to praise his administration's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, calling son-in-law and advisor Jared Kushner brilliant after Kushner touted their coronavirus response as a, quote, great success story, a claim made on the same day that the U.S. hit 60,000 deaths from coronavirus, a death toll that had previously been projected the U.S. would not hit until August. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, despite the president's praise of his administration's actions, members of his administration are still sharing information and acting in ways that are contradictory to the coronavirus guidance they tell the rest of us to follow. Well, I don't know where it came up. After confidently predicting the U.S. will be able to run 5 million coronavirus tests a day soon, President Trump hedged his bets today. That was a study that came out. Somebody came out with a study of 5 million people. Do I think we will? I think we will, but I never said it. The number came from a new report published by Harvard University, which anticipated the U.S. will need to be able to conduct 5 million tests a day by early June to safely reopen. Asked Tuesday if he's confident that the U.S. could hit that mark, Trump said yes. Oh, well, we're going to be there very soon. The U.S. is currently testing nowhere near 5 million people a day, though, instead averaging about 200,000 daily tests. Hours before the president made those comments, the White House testing coordinator, Admiral Jawar, told Time magazine that given the current technology, there is absolutely no way on Earth, on this planet or any other planet, that we can do 20 million tests a day or even 5 million tests a day. That's a big number. That's Trump and his aides have often complained that the administration hasn't gotten enough credit for scaling up testing in other efforts to fight the coronavirus. He may be my son-in-law, but he is a brilliant person. Despite concerns from some health experts, Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner said the country does have enough testing to start opening, and he praised a widely criticized testing rollout. Somebody asked me why it took 
took so long, I actually said, you should look at how, how did we do this so quickly. With one million people now infected and the death toll higher than the Vietnam War, Kushner also predicted that most of the country will be back to normal by June. The, gov the government, federal government, rose to the challenge, and this is a great success story. And the hope is, is that by, by July, uh, the country's really rocking again. The White House's messaging on reopening the country has at times been confusing and contradictory. The president has encouraged states to reopen, even if they haven't met the administration's own criteria of a 14-day decline in new cases. And during a visit to the Mayo Clinic, the vice president flouted guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about wearing a face mask or covering when in public. I'm tested for the coronavirus on a regular basis, and everyone who is around me is tested for the coronavirus. The first lady seemed to remind the vice president of the CDC's guidance in a tweet today, urging people to cover their face. Now, Jake, when the president first assembled the coronavirus task force team, they met basically every single day except Easter weekend. They did not meet for three days in a row this week, but they were scheduled to have a meeting today. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much, President Trump, today. With many promises but few concrete answers on how to protect workers in meat processing plants after he ordered all of those facilities previously closed down because of coronavirus issues to reopen. How do you protect the workers, though, in those plants? What are you doing to protect Well, we're them? doing that. We're going to have a report on that probably this afternoon. We're going to have good form of protection. And uh, through quarantine, when we find somebody that's uh, not, we're going to be very, they're going to be very careful. They are as to who's going into the plant. And uh, the quarantine is going to be very strong. And we're going to make people better when they have a problem. We're going to get them better. Hopefully, they're going to get better. The executive order is also a signal that the Trump administration will stand on the side of the meatpacking plants if any employee were to sue the plant for exposure to coronavirus at work. Union leaders and workers have already told CNN that they're extremely worried about what might happen, noting that they work in extremely close quarters, and there is not enough testing to know who is sick. There also are not proper safety protocols to keep the virus from spreading, they say. CNN correspondent Omar Jimenez is live for us in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Omar, some of these meatpacking plants account for more than half of the coronavirus cases in their counties or towns, but they are still being told to reopen. Well, and that's the decision that these plants are now having to wrestle with. When you talk about this, the three major meatpacking plants in Green Bay alone, it is those employees' positive test results and those links that account for more than half in this county. And part of why this county now has the highest infection rate in the entire state of Wisconsin. Now, when you look at those three plants, American Foods, Psalm, and JBS, JBS is the only one that has closed its doors uh, over the past week, in part because of coronavirus. They've been most significantly affected, more than 250 uh, employees testing positive there. But the important note is that this is an impact we're seeing across the country. That is the fourth plant that JBS has had to close. And while two others have reopened, based on President Trump's executive order, we will now wait and see on whether the others will soon follow suit. Again, as we have seen more than 20 plants close over just the past few weeks or two months, I should say, Jake, in the midst of this pandemic. And Omar, we've been, we've been covering the racial disparities in who gets sick by the coronavirus, who dies from the coronavirus. Data shows that the majority of workers in these plants are Latino or African-American. 
so, I mean, here's another example of why that might be. Yeah, Jake, we're seeing 35% of workers at these plants are Hispanic, 20% black. And when you add up black, Hispanic, and Asian, it's almost two-thirds of all workers in these plants are minorities at the very least. And I spoke to one Hispanic worker at a plant here in Green Bay earlier today who says that honestly 90% of the people he works with are Hispanic and that they speak Spanish before English. And he says that he fears having to go back to work uh, because he actually tested positive for coronavirus and has been home. He also says that while he is documented, he knows undocumented immigrants and say they fear speaking up to management for possible consequences of not being asked to return, Jake. That's right. Omar Jimenez in, in Green Bay. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And be sure to tune in this Sunday night on CNN for a CNN special report, The Pandemic and the President. My team and I investigate what happened in the White House as the coronavirus spread around the world and then across the United States. It's this Sunday night at 10 p.m. Coming up, more potentially encouraging news. One major company says it could have an emergency vaccine ready in just a few months. We're going to talk to a vaccine expert about that next. Stay with us. In our Health Lead Today, new research from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP, finds the closer people live and work together, the more threatening and the more deadly the coronavirus can be. This partly explains why New York City, for example, has been the epicenter of the virus, while rural areas have yet to be hit nearly as hard. Joining us now to discuss is Dr. Paul Offit. He's director of the Vaccine Education Center at CHOP and a member of the FDA's Vaccine uh, Advisory Committee. Um, Dr. Offit, thanks so much for joining us. You co-authored an op-ed in the New York Times about how a dense population can make the virus spread more quickly. Can you explain why a dense population also makes the virus theoretically more deadly? Probably because you're exposed to a larger inoculum of the virus. And the more virus that you're exposed to, the sicker you're going to get. That's the most likely reason. Just the same way that we saw doctors uh, in China die of it because they were exposed to more of it. That's exactly right. Yes. And obviously doctors here in the United States and nurses as well. You compare this to the chickenpox in the sense that when a family is infected, the second child to get it is usually more seriously ill because they've been exposed to more of the virus. So if one lives in a major city like Philadelphia or Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, is it unavoidable that you're going to come in contact with the virus? It's certainly much more difficult to avoid it. And when you come in contact with somebody up close, as a doctor does, or as a second child in the family does, then you're going to be exposed to more virus. There's more viral replication and there's a greater degree of d disease. And that's that's sort of true of many infections. You say this will be our new reality until a vaccine is developed. Uh, the pharmaceutical company Pfizer says they could potentially supply millions of vaccines for emergency use by the end of the year. What do you make of that timeline? Give us a reality check on it. Well, certainly the only way to develop population immunity, true population immunity, is with a vaccine. Um, but you want to make sure that, that, and there are many companies that are making vaccines, more than 70 companies across the globe are making vaccines, but you want to make sure that before you give a vaccine 
to millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, then you hold that vaccine to a high level uh, or high standard of safety and efficacy. And you want to make sure that there are, you know, fairly large placebo controlled prospective studies before you put a vaccine out there. And I, I worry a little bit that that we're going to, by shortening the timeline, we may not have as much information as we'd like about safety or efficacy before the vaccine rolls out to the general public. You've developed vaccines in the past, and, and as you know, they, they normally take several years, as you're suggesting, sometimes decades. Um, are steps definitively being skipped to make a vaccine available in the next year to a year and a half? Well, by definition, I mean, the average length of time to make a vaccine typically is about 20 years from, you know, the early research on through the research of development. When you're making a vaccine in a year or 18 months, by definition, you're skipping or compressing steps. I think the big step that you're skipping is typically for any vaccine that's licensed. First of all, it is licensed. It goes through the FDA licensure procedure is that you test tens of thousands of people in a prospective placebo controlled trial to make sure that it's safe, to make sure that it's effective. I think that when you you uh do you do it the way we're doing it here? Where I think it's going to be maybe a thousand or a few thousand people that are tested before the vaccine is, is, is at least FDA approved, if not licensed. I think you, you, you wonder whether or not the vaccine is, is as safe and as effective as you'd like it to be. You may only learn that after the vaccine is already rolled out. And what are the risks of moving this quickly? Well, as in anything in medicine, there's benefits and risks. I mean, we're terrified by this virus. We're paralyzed by the virus. It's, you know, it's killing a a couple thousand people a day in the United States. And so I think we're willing probably to take a little more in the way of of, of risks regarding the vaccine um, than we would normally for, for, you know, for a virus that isn't a scourge like this one. And it's true of anything in medicine. It's always a matter of risk benefit. There's an enormous benefit to to a vaccine that works and is safe. And I think we're willing to, to not know as much as we would normally know in order to get a vaccine more quickly. And Oxford University, as you know, they say they're developing a promising vaccine. They say they could finish trials by the fall. What do you know about that vaccine? Is that also too ambitious a timeline? Well, so that's a vectored virus vaccine, much like the vaccine that we have currently for Ebola or or for dengue. I know that that vaccine has worked uh, well in their uh, monkey animal model studies, and that's encouraging. Um, But as a friend of mine says, regarding animal model studies, mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. You never really know until you put it in people. And I think people, uh, these companies or even the academic institutions shouldn't make broad claims until they really are confident that the vaccine has been tested in large numbers of people to make sure that it's safe and it's effective. Is there anything that you're hearing about as a potential vaccine? I'm not going to hold you to it because it's just a, 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 based on what you know now. But is there anything that you're excited about that you think is promising? I think everything is on the table. A whole killed virus, a live weakened virus, a, a, a purified protein vaccine, a so-called mRNA or DNA vaccine, which also is essentially a single protein vaccine. I think anything is possible. Right now, there's much that's unknown. And so we should be careful about how we move forward. All right, Dr. Paul Offit in the great city of Philadelphia. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you, Jake. It's kind of a gamble. The life and death struggle some small business owners are dealing with right now in a community hit hard by the coronavirus. That's next. The money lead today, another blinking red light for an economy in crisis because of the pandemic. U.S. economic growth shrank 4.8 percent in the first quarter of the year, the Bureau of Economic Analysis announced earlier today. Consumer spending, investing, 
income, production, all of them down for the first time in six years. And it's the biggest drop since the Great Recession of 2008. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley right now to, to translate all this. And Julia, the timing of the drop is what's so stunning. The economy mm-hmm. is argu- arguably relatively normal in January and February. And then came March when the pandemic really hit the U.S. hard. We literally went from normal, exactly to your point, to economic collapse in the space of two weeks, remember, the final two weeks of March. That's when the shutdown kicked in and and we saw the devastation that was created. The problem here is as bad as March was, we've sat through the whole of April too. We know that's going to be worse. And the second quarter, Jake, is probably going to be the worst we've ever seen. That's right. We heard uh, the White House economic advisor talking about kind of like poo-pooing what happened in the first quarter because the second quarter is going to be so much worse. Um, lower health care spending ha- had a big impact on the drop. That seems counterintuitive because hospitals are so overwhelmed by the coronavirus. It's counterintuitive, but the truth is emergency services don't pay hospital bills, nor do they fuel economic growth in the U.S. economy. That comes down to elective or planned surgeries. And, of course, a lot of that got cancelled or delayed as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. For some hospitals, we even saw healthcare workers furloughed or laid off. It's why the hospitals now are so desperate for money, too. Um, Big news for the small business loan program that you and I have been discussing now for a month or so. Tonight, only lenders that have assets less than a billion dollars, one billion dollars, can submit applications. Can they just change the rules like that so suddenly? I mean, they've been doing the rule changing thing for day after day after day, really, since this began. In all fairness, it's about trying to level the playing field here. My big fear is that there are still small businesses that went to lenders bigger than this in order to get a financial lifeline. And for the next eight hours, at least, they are locked out. One business owner texted me today and he said, is this even legal? I'm desperate and I'm still waiting. It's a mess, Jake. That's the truth. And moments ago, the Federal Reserve announced um, it's going to keep uh, interest uh, rates uh, uh, low. Uh, Tell us more about that. Well, it's interesting. They said that more support's going to be needed, both from Congress and from the Federal Reserve. They're right. But the stock market reaction for me today is what's critical. I think the Federal Reserve is now in danger of looking like it's done more for Wall Street, as good as it is for people with 401ks, than they have for Main Street, businesses, real people that are struggling. They're going to have to address that balance some point soon. All right, Julia Chatterley, thank you so much, uh, as always, for your expertise. The financial crisis colliding with this pandemic has left many African-American and black business owners in particular with a difficult decision to make reopen and at least try to earn enough money to live or, as CNN anchor Victor Victor Blackwell reports, stay closed given the disproportional rate black communities have been impacted by COVID-19. Just south of Atlanta, Gaucher's Breakfast Bar is open, but business is slow. We went from a full restaurant of 120 seat capacity to maybe two or three people are trickling in. Owner Gaucher Hawkins is offering dine-in services days after Georgia Governor Brian Kemp eased restrictions on restaurants. But does she think this is right for all restaurants? I didn't think it was a good idea because just the masses of people in restaurants, the not social distancing, I just, I thought it was too soon, too much too soon. 
Carlos Davis's barbershop in Albany is open too, and he's afraid. Fear of what's out here, but in fear if you don't get back to opening, you won't have a business um, to open. It's a challenge that some African-American business owners who serve mostly African-American customers are weighing. How to reopen without contributing to the racial disparity of coronavirus cases. According to the most recent census, African-Americans account for 32 percent of Georgia's population. But in cases in which race is reported, African-Americans account for 40 percent of coronavirus cases. Diane Matthews is president of the South Fulton Chamber of Commerce. Her group represents businesses in eight North Georgia cities. Most are majority African-American. The biggest fear is that a lot of the non-essential businesses are just going to end up having to open up all their doors. That's going to continue raising the numbers in our community, putting us even more and more at risk. Glenn Singfield II co-owns the Flint restaurant in Albany. I spoke my governor, mayor, all that. However, we have to do what's best for our community and our, and our people and our employees. That's why some of these business owners are taking steps to keep themselves and their customers safe. They're only coming in one or two at a time. Goshe says that she'll limit capacity to 10, although a total of six customers have dined in each day this week. Carlos's barbers are wearing face masks and cutting by appointment only. It's kind of a gamble, but I really kind of have a choice. Glenn is not taking a chance. Anybody getting sick and passing away or getting sick, period, it will hurt us personally. We are standing where we're going to remain safe for a little while. A tough decision for a lot of business owners. And, Jake, I have to give you the results of a a shocking study, even shocked the CDC researchers who conducted it. They surveyed eight hospitals across the state of Georgia, seven in metro Atlanta area, one in south Georgia. Of the 305 coronavirus patients who were admitted, they found that 83 percent of them in the month of March were African-American. Again, something that they didn't even expect, considering the disparity. Jake? (sighs) Victor Blackwell in Atlanta, thank you so much for that important report. We appreciate it. We have some breaking news just into CNN. The president lashing out at his re-election campaign manager. The behind-the-scenes details next. The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, up next on CNN. And we have this breaking news for you. The coronavirus pandemic is clearly complicating November's presidential election, uh, given the human and economic toll on the United States. And now CNN is learning about uh, an angry outburst from President Trump directed at his campaign manager as the president fumes over criticism of his handling of the pandemic and the sliding poll numbers that have come with that, sources tell CNN. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is breaking the story for us. Uh, Jeremy, what are you learning? Uh, Well, Jake, uh, as as you mentioned, President Trump has grown increasingly unnerved in the last week about his reelection prospects. Aides have presented him uh, with data showing that his poll numbers are sliding in some of those key battleground states and that he could be headed for defeat against former Vice President Joe Biden if things continue the way that they are. Amid all of that, Jake, uh, the stress of of that information affecting the president, it seems, uh, and he uh, let it out in an angry outburst uh, with Brad Parscale, the president's campaign manager. I'm told that the president was huddling with some of his aides uh, on Friday at the White House Friday evening and that Brad Parscale was on the phone. The president berated him, I'm told, uh, for his own sliding poll numbers, um, as well as uh, for uh, 
and, and even threatened to sue uh, Parscale. Now, it's not clear exactly how serious the president was about that threat. And I'm told that the president and Parscale have since patched things up. In fact, Brad Parscale spent several hours uh, at the White House just yesterday and got the president's approval on some new uh, campaign ads. But, Jake, this is just the latest sign of how the president is really trying to grapple with what is a rapidly shifting dynamic in this 2020 election. Coronavirus has changed everything. The president's economy has been overturned. Uh, and, and certainly the president is grasping for ways that he can regain ground. Uh, amid all of that, some of his aides, including Parscale, uh, have been encouraging him uh, to scale back some of those news briefings. And uh, what one source uh, close to the White House told me was that the president's outbursts uh, at Parscale uh, appears to be just the president blowing off steam and, and, and really trying to blame other people uh, for some of his own failings. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, what is it actually like to fly in an airplane right now? Our CNN correspondent found out. That story next. There is barely anybody. In our Money League today, 500 TSA employees have tested positive for coronavirus, the agency announced today. The majority of those cases are employees who handle baggage and do passenger screening. CNN's Pete Muntean shows us what your next trip might look like as airports are trying to adapt in the age of coronavirus. A scene too similar to travel before this pandemic, new videos of packed planes, passengers bottled up in rows and aisles, surfaced over the weekend, raising new fears about social distancing when flying and new calls to restrict air travel even further. JetBlue this week became the first airline to require passengers to wear masks. Its COO calls the move the new flying etiquette. United followed suit late yesterday, announcing that it will give passengers masks, though not requiring that they be worn. The leader of the American Flight Attendants Association told CNN there must be an across-the-board mask requirement and a federal ban on leisure travel by air. We're seeing more and more full flights without policies that really address proper social distancing or a required wearing of masks. But the nation's air travel is at a virtual halt. Nearly half of all commercial jetliners are now parked. The TSA says only 5% of passengers are passing through checkpoints compared to a year ago. Thanks. I set out to see what it's like to fly right now, traveling from Washington, D.C. to Atlanta and back. It's hard to find someone not already wearing a mask. Airlines are stepping up their use of electrostatic sprayers to disinfect passenger cabins. Crews handed out this Pure Well wipe as we got on board. Airlines are also not booking middle seats. In accordance with social distancing. Hoping to keep up social distancing on board. Industry groups say the average domestic flight is now carrying 17 passengers, up from 10 passengers just over a week ago. I think the people that are traveling are probably healthy. They're not ill or critical or in a bad situation. Everybody should be wearing a mask. Today, the Department of Transportation gave airlines permission to start scaling back service to small city airports. Plane maker Boeing CEO is forecasting a years-long recovery for airlines. Even still, the industry is holding out hope that new measures will mean a new normal of flying again. We're hopeful that that will happen. You know, Jake, from what I saw, passengers do seem keen on social distancing, not only on planes, but also here in the terminal. Delta and United have done away with boarding by zone, instead switching to boarding by row, starting with the back of the plane first. Jake. All right, Pete Montine at Reagan National. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Today, we're remembering 30-year-old Rana Zoe Mungin, a teacher in Brooklyn, New York, who died this week of coronavirus. 
Manjin first reported symptoms in mid-March, but she was turned away from emergency rooms twice. By the time she was admitted, she was immediately put on a ventilator. She spent a month on the machine before she died on Monday. Manjin will be remembered for her academic excellence and her love for teaching. May her memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.